Hi, I am Olumide Olainka. A big hello and welcome to the Startup Lagos podcast. A podcast dedicated to highlighting the bubbling scene of the growing startup community of the city of Lagos. On the show, get to hear inspiring stories from founders, entrepreneurs, investors, corporates, and other ecosystem stakeholders. To subscribe to us, visit podcast.startuplagos.co. Stay tuned with us. Stay pumped. SME lending, consumer lending, um, the utilization of alternative data for credit scoring, as well as InsureTech. So it really uh, runs the gamut. About 20% of our portfolio is based here in Nigeria. Um, And myself and Tunde had a really great opportunity earlier this year um, through the Partnership for Finance in a Digital Africa uh, initiative, which is essentially trying to build meaningful financial inclusion in a digitized era, um, to go to China to better understand what the financial inclusion and fintech ecosystem looks like there, how government is helping to either help or harness or um, restrict financial inclusion in some instances, um, how partnerships are a really key component to um, why these fintech leaders are, are really creating a big difference across China. And the entire goal was to convene different leaders um, that are working in Africa to bring those learnings in their own small ways back into their work. So that's the kind of basis for today's program. Um, but our panelists come from all different walks of life. Um, I'm actually going to start with Tunde and give Tunde a, a chance to introduce himself. But I would love for the, the first question here is to talk about your experience on the FIDA trip um, and how that trip aligned with your expectations of either the country or the fintech ecosystem. Um, and in what areas were you most surprised? Thank you, uh, Ashley. So I'm Tunde Kende. I run Lydia, and we do small business financing. So what that means is if you apply today, you get your money tomorrow as a small business. And over time, we give you risk-adjusted pricing offers and credit scoring that rewards you based on your behavior. So as you take and you pay back, you get higher amounts and better pricing over time. Um, As Ashley mentioned, we were together in China a few months ago, and a few things stood out on that trip. So one was just the sheer scale of what people are doing in the country. So not just from fintech, but across any single sector you can think about, from infrastructure, telecommunications, and of course financial services. And it was interesting to see the role technology is playing in delivering financial services to the underserved or underbanked and what that means. So everything from consumer credits to helping people get the money they need for their personal expenses to SME financing, but also things like asset management, insurance, etc. And how traditional players, banks, insurance companies are partnering with fintech players to say, look, we have a deep database of customers. We are traditionally brick and mortar. But let's partner with the fintech guys to be able to assess, in some cases, in as little as seconds, and then be able to deliver money to someone in three to five minutes. So that's what really stood out. Thank you, Tunde. We'll just kind of go down the the order here. So, uh, Tayo Ogundipe, feel free to share. (laughs) I I feel like I might have butchered that. (laughs) Feel free to correct me. Um, But please share with us what you're doing at uh, Solophone. 
And then I'll launch into my question after that. Fantastic. Uh, the name is Tayo Ogundipe, uh, born and raised here in Nigeria as well. Uh, at Solo, we, uh, we try to, our focus primarily is to help uh, accelerate smartphone adoption in, uh, in Africa. Uh, we work on the premise that uh, there is a nexus between digital inclusion and financial inclusion, and that technology is going to be the platform through which we actually democratize access to credit, access to financial services and commerce. And uh, that uh, the smartphone is probably going to be the only computer that overwhelming majority of people in Africa will ever own. Uh, the process of making that available is what we really are about. Uh, as Ashley rightly mentioned, we started off with a device called, uh, so we have Solo Phone, which is a brand out there in the marketplace. Uh, but for us, that's just uh, a necessity to, to, to actualize the bigger vision of what we're trying to do. We're more of an end-to-end player, and it's less important to us whether we, uh, whether we own uh, uh, the hardware or not, the most important thing for us is to facilitate the adoption of smartphones and to help drive the content and services that runs on it. The good news for us is like there is now, at least in the last 12 months, uh, the coming together of all the key stakeholders in the space. You have network investors have put in a lot of money. I mean, network players are putting a lot of money in 3G and 4G technology. So the necessity of the device to run on it, to generate the necessary data revenue, is now more compelling than ever before. Voice has gone down. So the, what we've been preaching for the past three years is now getting far more traction. And we are trying to now change the face of the industry to make sure that we accelerate adoption and then deliver the services that will include financial inclusion. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that background. Um, and so with this opportunity, and I'm actually going to come back to you, with, uh, with Sotophone, you, you're spending a, a lot of time between China in the early years and then here in Nigeria. Can you, and you talked about stakeholder engagement. So what does that look like between the two regions? And what are some key learnings maybe for our audience that might be engaging between both? It's quite interesting. I mean, like, uh, although I said I was born and raised here, but I spent the last 25 years or so of my life in the United States. So I actually, uh, the family is in the States. If I, if I say I live in the States now, my wife would dispute that because I'm always here. That said, uh, most of my, I've been in telecom since 1998. So for the past 20 years, I've been in the space, both on the network operator side and then on the hardware side. Worked for Sony Ericsson and I worked for two years in Taiwan with uh, HTC. Uh, as the chief of staff to the CEO there. So that gave me a lot of exposure to the Asian market. So when I started Solo, it was actually an interesting experience uh, because the relationship between China and the United States, where I actually gathered most of my experience, was totally different from the relationship between China and Africa. And uh, a big part of what we needed to do, for example, we literally had to incorporate an American company in order to actually get that relationship established because Africa was such a black box that a lot of the people we were talking to in China were far more comfortable going to contracts with an American-based company just because the structures are there, the legal structure is there for any kind of recourse or for settlement, uh, for settling any, 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 any issues. So those are the kind of things you have to do to get going. Uh, but a lot has changed in the past four or five years since we started solo, right? I mean, it's like Africa is better known to China today. Uh, the experience has evolved enough, uh, not all positive for, from the point of view of the Chinese vendors. Uh, but also through those learnings, they figured ways to, to play in this market in a way that actually meet the needs of, uh, of, of both sides. So for, for me, it's actually quite interesting to see that transition from a China-U.S. kind of relationship to a China-Africa kind of relationship where I use my U.S. connections to bridge that gap. Thank you so much. And then moving over to Jeremy uh, Kirschbaum, feel free to introduce yourself and a little bit more about your work. Sure. Um, I am a uh, researcher and strategist in 
consultant, occasional entrepreneur, lowercase e. Um, and I spend about a third of my time here in Nigeria and about a third of my time in China and about a third of my time in California, where I'm from and where I grew up. And um, I've been spending the last three or four years looking at the connection between Nigeria and China, um, both on the way that formal programs from China, like the One Belt, One Road initiative, are deliberately increasing connections with Africa, um, and informal, the way that people from China are coming here to do business and the way that people here are going to China to do business. Um, if we, uh, so a, a group that I work with a lot or a cohort is in an, a city called Guangzhou in China, um, in net, near Shenzhen in the Pearl River Delta. Um, and in Guangzhou, there's two particular areas of the city, Suanyanli and Xiaobei, that are, um, more than 80% African. Um, Pan-African, so many Nigerians, of course, um, Tanzanians, Congolese, anywhere you can name. And they're coming there to purchase goods. Not all of them are in Guangzhou. A lot of them are in Iwu and other places. Um, and if you want to, if we want to think about financial inclusion and business um, in China and who is an expert in that in Nigeria, we should probably just all go down to Balagoon Market <laughs> and ask them down there. Um, so maybe we could build a little bit more on that as we go. That would be great. Yeah, I would love to hear what you're seeing. You're kind of in, in having exposure to three of the major innovation hubs, um, Silicon Valley, here in Nigeria, and in China, and helping to accelerate companies. And so how, how do you view the differences between the three, and, and where do you think they're actually more similar than different? Um... Yeah, it's a good question. I spend a lot of time trying to build connections between the three places, and those connections have very different characteristics. A lot of Chinese businesses, especially in Guangzhou and another city I spend a lot of time is Chongqing, where they manufacture like 40% of the world's motorcycles. So most of the motorcycles you see in Legos come from this one city. And um, they're selling goods to Nigeria. They don't necessarily know at all what is going on here, but they have been doing business here for years and years, originally through orders and then now through online. And... Um, so there's that connection there, although the the cultural understanding isn't always there, or like the the economic context even. Um, in the U.S., there's more and more connections with my kind of like technology or venture communities in California, uh, small but growing, and I think that if we uh, curate that and grow it in the right way it could be something really healthy and mutually beneficial. Um, so between those three, there's kind of like different uh, opportunities in in terms of the fact that people dollars that people are holding in California can have way more impact here than they can in San Francisco. 
there's both Nigeria and the U.S. leverage the production capacity and increasingly the technology capacity of China. And then Nigeria, which is rising in, in, in terms of its relevance and, um, and visibility, both in China and the United States as a place with a lot of innovation and a big market and a growing market. Okay, thank you for that. Um, so one of my key takeaways while we were in China was essentially how much these startups and, and also larger, larger organizations are actually partnering with each other. And I know, Tunde, in order for you to execute SME lending quite well, it really relies on partnerships. And so curious to hear what your key takeaways were in regards to what partnerships look like in China and, and what learnings can apply here. Yeah, so just for the benefit of the f- folks in the crowd, there are two ways to get a loan from us at Lydia. So either you come directly on our website, apply for a loan, and we come back to you within 24 hours with a yes or a no, and if you are approved, we disperse the money to you. The second way is through our partners. So we now work with about 70 enterprises, associations, companies, everything from Consumer Goods Association to uh, Coca-Cola to Nestle to say, look, you have lots of small businesses in your value chain. Let's help you get credit to your distributors, your retailers, your vendors, so they can supply you better or they can buy from you. And it was interesting to see this model, I think 2.0, um, in China to understand how fintech companies are partnering with banks and insurance companies in two main ways. So one is, look, lots of banks are have legacy systems. They are brick and mortar. They understand that they need to become more digital. But at the same time, they also appreciate that if they decided to go digital themselves, it would be a five to ten year journey. And by that time, most likely you've been disrupted and your relevance to your customers is diminished. So what they are saying to these fintech companies is, look, we have the capital to deploy. Why don't you do the assessment for us? And we can now deploy money to our customers and be known to give consumer loans within five minutes or small business loans within 10 minutes. And and together we can partner to attract more customers to our business and we can both share the economics. And that model is clearly... 2.0, 2.0, right? And that's where the world is going. So we're doing the exact same thing here. We partner now with banks. We've signed two banks in the country, and we're partnering with those banks to say, look, let's lend to your small business customers. But we see the use case as it is in China across multiple areas. So uh, folks who are in telecommunications, we partner now with two telcos to give financing to their distributors. We're partnering with folks who are manufacturers of devices. We're partnering with folks who are consumer goods entities. Anyone that has small business customers, we can assess, give them credits, and then help them to uh, grow. And to give some sense of the scale, we've now done about 3 billion naira worth of financing in the last 18 months to small businesses, and our default rates are 0.5%, so it's almost nothing. Mm-hmm. And today, I hope you don't mind, but I actually have a follow-up question. So um, as a startup, I'm curious how receptive organizations were to partner with you and kind of what were those challenges or, or what were some of the tactics that you found to garner respect or, or um, I would say, buy-in from larger institutions or even other you know, startup-level organizations? What was that like? Yeah, 
I'm smiling because this is why I'm in a suit and tie today. So part of the reality of it is, look, fintech is still very new and a bit scary for a lot of people around the world, particularly when you tell someone, look, I can assess you and give you money tomorrow. It sounds like 419. It sounds like a scam for the most part. So what everything we do is always to communicate trust to our partners. So Taya mentioned the point around, look, how are you incorporating and setting up your entity? It's really important because for us, we found that whether they might like the jurisdiction or not, but people understand if you are a U.S. incorporated entity, what is the implication from a legal perspective, from a tax perspective, which then builds trust. For us, it's partly why we partnered with Axion. You guys were in our first seed round. And when you have a large institution behind you, it also lets folks know, look, this business will be here for the future. They won't be here today and gone tomorrow. So I can look to partner with them. And then, because of course, you can imagine within these enterprises, uh, they are taking a bet on on you, but also it affects their job at the same time. Look, if I partner with Lydia and expose a lot of data, will they be around in six months? And what does that mean for me? And then also what we've done is really built the best team in the market going after this. So beyond myself and Urchin, between myself and Urchin, we've now worked with 30,000 small businesses in the market, with Jumia. I founded Jumia in Nigeria. Urchin was the COO for Jumia Africa, helping small businesses uh, retail their goods, with Ace, a, our logistics business, helping them deliver and warehouse and now Lydia Lending. So we have credibility and we built a world-class team around that, which lets folks know, look, we're the best team in the market to partner on this. And once they're over that hurdle, it's a very clear use case. We're giving your people money to buy more from you. It's a no-brainer. Thank you for that. Um, Tayo, I just have a question for you. So um, the reality is, is that... Uh, what we've found in financial inclusion is sometimes social media and entertainment are the gateway in, um, to these products, and it's a, really a strong customer acquisition tool. And so when we were um, visiting Tencent, for example, they're leading with their um, chat interface or with their social media products as opposed to the financial service products, which are in the background, but which are really great add-ons and, and value adds for their, their customers. So I'm curious with Solophone, given that it is a, an experience-led device, what plans do you have for financial inclusion and how do you view this intersection of um, social media and entertainment with finance? Oh, great question. Uh, again, it goes back to the point I made earlier on. Uh, we genuinely believe that digital inclusion is a lead, is a gateway to financial inclusion. Part of that is just a practical fact. I mean, Nigeria is a big country. After the six states, a lot of rural areas, you are not going to build enough branches to cover the people. And the reality is some of these models have already been established. If we go to East Africa today, MTN Uganda has more people on mobile money than all the banks in Uganda combined in terms of subscriber base. That's just the way it is. So once you figure all this out, then you realize that, one, the first step you need to do is, like, how do we actually, uh, in, a, in an indirect way, organize people? How do we get them into that, into that space where we know that they are there? And the only vehicle I know that actually maximizes that, that optimizes that today, is through the smartphone. Okay, so we focus primarily on how do we accelerate smartphone adoption? And just building on what Tunde just said, the first step for us is building the right partnership. I'm a big believer in building partnership. In fact, the, 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 the model that we've actually perfected and that operators are now adopting across Africa is built around an ecosystem. And the key to that ecosystem is that you have partners that take on different aspects of the verticals. For example, I have distributors on the smartphone side that they take inventory risk. Then I go get a finance company like, say, Ray Money, to take the financing risk for the consumer because they are credit people. They know how to evaluate credit, right? And what we tell 
that gives us access to customer detail records in order to qualify customers to decide who can or cannot participate, right? And then we work with OEMs who are in the business of building phones, targeted at certain segments, both in terms of spec and price, and able to build the experiences you are talking about into that solution for the consumer. Then we go to the insurance company. Then I bring a lock technology to the table and say, basically, if I give you a phone on, on a financing model that is done differently, in which case you subscribe to an operator plan and you get a free smartphone, and part of that process is that that phone comes to you with some of these social services we talked about, but also solutions that are relevant to your need. Uh, last year, we did uh, uh, an experiment with uh, Airtel and, Re and REM money, and we put close to 10,000 devices out there. And it was a very, very effective, uh, very successful proje uh, project because essentially people subscribe to Airtel plans. They got a free solo smartphone, but that allows us to onboard them, not just as solo customer or Airtel customer. They were also onboarded as REM money customers. And Raymond was able to then cross market to them other credit services using access that they get through those uh, smartphones. That's how you bring all these elements together. So for us, the, the key is building the right kind of partnership because that's also critical to scale. You know, it's difficult in this environment to attract the kind of capital to do what I'm talking about from end to end all under one roof. So it's through partnership that you scale. And then you use the right people for the right areas. And then the experiences we are talking about, in fact, Solo Pride itself, less about our hardware, much as we like the fact that we're in that space. But to us, the sale is the beginning of the process. So we launch with Solo Music and Solo Movies because then people get used to their phone. It becomes second nature to them. That's where the name came from. You can't do without it. If it's your second nature, it's your mobile radio, it's your mobile TV, then it's easy for it to become your mobile bank. And that's why we're able to convince Sterling Bank to go into partnership with us. So you are very right. The, to me, the, the social part is just making people familiar with it, making the second nature to them. It's more than just a phone to make a call. It's actually a key part of your life. And once people get used to that, layering other services on top of it becomes a no-brainer. I do have a follow-up question because oftentimes what we hear is that um, customers aren't saying, oh, I want a bank account or, oh, I really want an insurance product. So how do you, how have you built kind of this feedway or this, this loop of feedback between your customers and your organization to make sure that you can now use your platform um, to deliver relevant products for your customer segment? No, you're very right. And I think part of that is also an awareness thing, right? I mean, and also as Tudor mentioned before, we are all a product of our experiences, right? And we've had too many false starts in this market. People that have made promises that couldn't follow through. So people come into all of these things with a lot of skepticism. So my own view basically is like, you almost always have to find the early stage of any adoption to be a no-brainer. Just make it a no-brainer. So for example, when we did music, before we got involved in music, people were expecting others to come in and subscribe to music services. What we did was to bundle it with the solo devices. So right out of the gate, the cost of the music is already embedded in the device. So you get a device, got access to 20 million songs, unlimited streaming, unlimited download for free. So it becomes a why not kind of proposition. Why wouldn't I do it? So when you lower the barrier for people to try it, then it's easier to come back and layer, say, a freemium kind of music service and say, okay, now you've enjoyed free music. Now I'm cutting down the volume that is free. You can buy the, the newer and more premium kind of services. So I think the first thing you need to do is just acknowledge the reality that people are skeptical, generally speaking, for good reasons. And then your proposition to them is almost like a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you try? For example, if, if, if you get a solo phone and uh, you have a good service, like the one we did with Airtel, you get 4,115 4, naira every month. For that, you get one gigabyte of data, 60 minutes of voice, 60 SMS. 
We gave you insurance and a few other services, including content. It's a no-brainer. So it's easier when Rare Money reaches out to you and says, look, you are welcome to Solo, welcome to Rare Money. We have these other services that you can participate in. It's easier because you already have a phone that they finance for you. So it's just about understanding people's vulnerabilities and trying to accept it for what it is rather than fight it and then use that as a gateway for winning back their trust and then you can lay out their services on top. Thank you so much. Um, Jeremy, so you spend a lot of time thinking about the future. Um, I'd be curious to hear how you would classify where we're at today in China and in, in Nigeria when it comes to financial inclusion and also where we're going over the next, let's say, decade. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, just coming back to who and what we're talking about when we talk about financial inclusion between China and Nigeria, um, the most of the business between China and Nigeria is done through trade. And the traders uh, that I work with in China, you can do a, a rough calculation, right? So it, a lot of them come to China four or five times a year, and that means that they're buying a plane ticket and they're spending money on lodging and et cetera, et cetera, when they're in China. So immediately you know that they're buying enough goods every time that they come to China that the profit that they're making on those goods is enough to not only pay all of that back plus the cost of their goods, but also enough to feed their families and their community. Um, so that should be at least, I don't know, probably at the low end, 200K dollars a year in cash flow. At, at, and some people at the high end, you know, some of these are doing millions of dollars in cash flow a year. That's how all of these goods get here. Um, to, or anywhere. I mean, you could say the same for any country, although they have different characteristics. So the access um, there is pretty incredible to to cash flow capital. Um, and then the uh, they come back and they sell the goods and they go into the market so they're they're they have a business, they have a brand. So they're kind of doing everything that we struggle with in the startup space. Right? They like have customers, they have traction, they sell, they have all the relationships, they have cash flow. Um, and we kind of have, they have everything we don't have. So I think that the future of financial inclusion and brokering really effective business level financial inclusion, um, in Nigeria and the Nigeria-China relationship would be about really leveraging that expertise that exists here and if we want to do stuff that because the, the piece that they are missing is value creation through product or service level innovation in in a in a productized way right which is what we're usually working on when we say that we're a startup so if there could be more connections between our community and that community and i'm assuming most people in this room are not part of that community because we're all not out selling things right now, which we would be, <laughs> right? Um, um, more connections there can really leverage the comparative advantage of both of those things. Whether you're working on a startup in the United, in, in Nigeria or you're from somewhere else trying to do business in Nigeria, um, working with that community. And this, this is not a new idea. 
Infinix backs there, back there, which is of course owned by Transion, which also owns Technophones, um, has been in Nigeria for, you know, 11, 12 years. And a big part of their success is working really closely with distributors, really closely. For, since, uh, I've talked with distributors in Balogun Market that I've been working with Infinix since before 2010. I can't even remember if I had a cell phone at that time. And really deeply flying distributors out to Shanghai to consult with them on designs for phones, things like that. So um, when we talk about inclusive innovation or financial inclusion, leveraging those existing connections, those existing partnerships, and trying to grow those successes, I think is um, a big part of it, um, as well as trying to create new things as well. Great. Thank you. And I feel like no panel would be complete without a comment about government. Um, so I'm going to kind of throw this out to the general panel. Feel free to answer if you feel comfortable. So one of the big observations that I made was uh, while we were there is just the um, – the, the government's role in ensuring financial inclusion was top priority in China. What it actually ended up resulting in was, was 80% of the population with a bank account. Um, when it came to fintech res, uh, regulation, it was a little bit more relaxed in the sense that they wanted to have a wait-and-see approach um, and then allow uh, organizations that made it through some of the, the key kind of hurdles that organizations go through uh, to have flexibility to design new products and services. So I'd be curious if anybody has experience or thoughts on government intervention in China or um, what we see going very well here in Nigeria or vice versa. No, it was, so for me, there was a very interesting comment on the trip when someone said, look, there's a lot of offline stuff that makes this online stuff happen, right? And so what that meant was, look, you need the physical infrastructure that supports things like connectivity, that supports things like uh, ability from a, for a driver just to drive from point A to point B, deliver a product, take cash for that, that item, point of sales machines. And what the bigger message then is, is look, you, you will have lots of private sector innovation. I think in almost any market in the world, there will be private sector innovation. The question is to get it to scale, what do you need? And you need the private sector innovation to be married with policy. And policy tends to be in general, how am I incentivizing people to invest and invest over the long term? So there's things around uh, taxes, there's things around ability to bring capital in, send capital out, there's things around attracting talent into your market. And then you also need the physical infrastructure, whether it's the cell towers, it's the roads, it's the trains that connects a country and then allows goods and services and people to move. And when you have that, access to financial services will have to come, right? Because there'll be lots of economic activity that's happening around the entire region, which would then mean there are businesses and businesses need to be banked and those businesses will have employees who need accounts, etc. So it's clear that, look, we all have very big goals. I'll talk about Nigeria as a country to get to, look, 80% financial inclusion, I think by 2020 is what the, what the uh, plan is. But you won't be able to get there without the policy support from the government. And to be fair, I think you're seeing, particularly in the last year, 
lots of consistent actions around building agency networks, incentivizing the banks, the payment platforms. Say, look, if you guys cannot build the physical branches, let's get the agents in these regions that at least begins to start to connect the rest of the country. So that's my view. I think where it's, there's a, for me, it's clear, look, doesn't matter if you talk to any business person, I'll talk for small businesses for the rest of time. They'll always say, I need more money. Right. So that's the truth that will be relevant for folks like us at Lydia. The question is going to be, can we make it easy for them to receive that money? And then the next question, of course, is do they want that money from us? So it, it, you need the policy support to go with the innovation if you want to get to scale. Sorry, please, if I could just add a few, a few things. And Tony is totally right. I mean, the, the role of government is pretty obvious, right? And one of the things that's frustrating, frankly, is in 2018, uh, just the natural evolution of things is like the expectations of government are actually a, l- a lot more modest, really. Because, as he said, private sector pretty much permeates everything now. Capital is incredibly mobile. Skill sets are incredibly mobile. So basically, government just has to do the minimum and do it well to create the enabling environment for things to actually take off. In our industry, it's a bit of a, an area of frustration for me, so that's why I just wanted to like uh, chime in a little bit here. Because in spite of what we discussed about the African-Chinese uh, market kind of relationship, I'm actually worried. I'm worried because a lot is changing. You know, uh, 10 years ago when I was Sony Ericsson or uh, six, six, seven years ago when I was HTC and so on and so forth, the structure of the... Hi, I am Olumide Olainka. A big hello and welcome to the Startup Lagos podcast podcast dedicated to highlighting the bubbling scene of the growing startup community of the city of Lagos. On the show, get to hear inspiring stories from founders, entrepreneurs, investors, corporates, and other ecosystem stakeholders. To subscribe to us, visit podcast.startuplagos.co. Stay tuned with us. Stay pumped. and all those kind of stuff. And he made an argument that said, look, the default assumption is that people go to China because labor is cheap. He said, yes, that was true. But in the past two or three years, not that much anymore. What's happening, which is part of what Jeremy mentioned before, is that China is actually becoming more sophisticated in terms of technology and innovation. They are getting more specialized, getting more efficient, like in our space. Uh, the reason why people go to China is less about labor costs, which quite frankly is no longer as cheap as before. I mean, you can go to Vietnam and get a better, uh, get better rate. You can come to Africa and get better rate. Even some part of Latin America, you get better rate. But what's happening is like the industry has gotten very specialized and much more efficient. So what used to be that if you have a factory in China and you want to make a phone, you have all the expertise in house. A lot of that has changed. They are now design houses. Like they call them design houses, but literally these guys, they've done everything. They build the reference phones. Right, the PCBA and everything is built. So all they do is that ship it to the factory for assembly. All right, and the reality is the assembly part is incredibly labor intensive. So what's happening now is a lot of that is moving out of China to Vietnam, to Pakistan, to other places. And this is what I worry about from the point of view of our government because we are missing out on this significant transition that's going on. And what makes it even more painful is what it takes for us to be part of it is the minimum. Because the only factor driving this is the regulatory environment. We're not even talking about investing in infrastructure. You could make the economic argument that you can generate your own power, and with the cheap labor here, you compensate for the, 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 the incremental cost of manufacturing or assembly. But 
like our own supplier, for example, just real, real life story. I was speaking with a guy like on Monday. We've become good friends. And after four or five years of working together, he's based in China. Uh, about two, three years ago, he reached out to me about the possibility of local assembly in Nigeria. Right? And incidentally, during my Sony Ericsson days, I participated in a study that looked at the southern cone for Sony Ericsson for local assembly. That's Brazil, Argentina, Chile, that, that part of the, uh, the world. So, and what they did then, it wasn't like brain surgery, right? They just basically set the tariff. So if you are bringing in completed uh, smartphones, the tariff could be like 40%. If you bring in CKD, which is for local assembly, it will be free, no tariff. That's it. That was just all they did. And what happened? Everybody found a way to manufacture locally in those countries. And today, all the assembly is done locally there. Between the time this guy mentioned to me about local assembly in Nigeria and now, They've started talking to Pakistan, and just he called me about a week ago and said they went live already in Pakistan. They're assembling there locally. They, because there's capacity out of China that they actually literally move a factory from China to Pakistan. So there's a lot of capacity built up in China that is now going to different parts of the world. And we are behind because we can't even do the most basic stuff, which is just the tariff alone. We're not even talking about investing in roads. We're not talking about building anything. Just set the right regulatory framework, and capital will come. So we, we need to, to the extent that this message can get across to the people that matter, uh, we need to get that across. I, I, I worry that we're, we're, we're focused on the wrong things, and a lot is changing already in China vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And if we don't change with it, we'll be getting the short end of that stick. That's just my fear. Thank you both for those comments. I would love to use our final few minutes to open up the floor to the audience if you guys have any questions that you would like to ask the panelists. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I just want to ask a question as regards partnership. You're an entrepreneur. You found a problem in the environment. You think you have a solution for that, but you don't have the ability to execute that. Now, you, you know firms that can execute what it is you want executed. How do you now go about forming partnerships with these firms? I ask that question based on the um, illustration you gave as regards telcos, OEMs, and all Fantastic. that. Fantastic. Thank no, you. No, you're right. I mean, I, you know, a friend of mine in Kenya once told me that, look, all he wants to do is solve a social problem with scale. And to do that, obviously, you bring something to the table. So uh, if I can, just to be clear, uh, you bring something to the table. It's a question of how do you assemble an ecosystem to make it work. But part of that is recognizing the fact that, honestly, given where we are in Africa, there's hardly any idea you have that if you build the right ecosystem around it and with the right partnership around it, everybody can't win. Okay? So you've got to get out of the zero-sum game mentality. Okay? And just look at it as a win-win. Right? We are today in the low 20s in that of smartphone penetration in Africa, in Nigeria, to be precise. Right? In South Africa, they are not of 60%. In the United States, it's not of 80%. In Western Europe, it's probably close to 90%. Right? We need more than them. Right? They have personal computers. They have laptops. We don't have any. So we need a smartphone than anybody else. In this country alone, we, in a good month, we do 500,000 smartphones in a good month. Right? And including that 500,000 will be at least 50 to 100,000 that bleeds to neighboring countries. Chad, Niger, Cameroon, and other places. So we are talking about 400,000 of which at least half are just upgrades, existing smartphone users buying a new one. 
So in the country of 180 million people, 150, whatever number you want to believe, you are doing new entrance into smartphone about 200,000 a month. That's 2.4 million a year. That's nothing. So if you have an idea that could grow that 2.4 million to 10 million or to 15 million, it's in your interest to find partners that will help you scale it and go after that pot of gold and worry less about how much of that 2.4 million you want to capture for yourself. So it's a mentality thing, right? And I know culturally we are not wired like that. But if we look at the bigger picture, it's a win-win scenario. Of course, be careful in choosing your partners. We don't have the legal structure to protect you. So if you are careless with your ideas, they will steal it, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's a natural concern. So you, of course, have to be smart about it. But there are people out there willing to do it the right way. My own theory is find somebody whose economic interests and yours are aligned. Okay? Telcos, for example, they spend a lot of money on 4G. A lot of people have their jobs at stake unless they can get smartphones on those networks to generate data revenues because that was how they justified the business case for the investment. You need to find those people because they need you more than you need them. Their job depends on it. So just investing the time and energy to find the right kind of partners is the key. But the opportunities are sufficient for enough goods to go around. Yes. Thank you. My question is directed to Mr. Tayo. Um, I actually had two questions, but you already answered one of them. That as regards the challenges you experienced with assembling your phones in Nigeria. And um, um, for example, I was doing a research with some friends about um, starting up a drone company in Nigeria. And, you know, the entry point, you know, it's, it's very high. You have to pay about 500,000 naira. They call it like deposit fee and, you know, so many fees, so many certificates and all that. So, and um, earlier today, there was a talk we had and um, a couple of guys were coming up with suggestions and all that. And one of the points someone said was similar to what, you know, we had in Nigeria recently, this not too young to run tag, you know. So, um, so we were talking about if startups in Nigeria um, could have a kind of consortium, you know, come together and, you know, let the government know what they need to know that is going to help us thrive in the system. So my question is this. Now, interestingly, what you said about the challenges you have with government policies, you know, even the, the talk we had yesterday at Andela, you know, the guy from Paystack talked about it, the guy from Minds.io talked. So it's like it's a problem everybody's experiencing. So my question is this, what do you think startups can do to influence government decisions in the tech ecosystem? Thank you. Uh, Tunde probably will answer that better than I can because he's more plugged into the startup environment than I am. I I'm ashamed to say that I'm just a trader, you know, computer village, what do I know? Uh, I, I think I think it's part of the evolution of every society. It's like all the stakeholders have to lay a, a, a claim to to the future of that society, right? And I know it's not easy, but as Tony rightly mentioned, in the last year and year and a half, in all fairness, we are beginning to see a path where the little bit of openness, you know, at the federal level to ideas. We've seen clips on social media of the vice president visiting all these locations and stuff. You have the likes of Zuckerberg coming here and putting money in Andela and all those kind of places. So I think the right people, and I'm looking at this guy, uh, needs to help facilitate organizing startups. Uh, there is nothing wrong in coming together as professional units, as trade groups or whatever, to help shape ideas. I, I think 
I, I really believe that lazy, easy money has made us lazy in Nigeria. You know, everybody, you come together, what the first people, what people are thinking of is what's in it for me. I mean, it's like, what kind of money are we going to get? I mean, and those kind of stuff. If we get out of that mentality and we focus on influencing policies and our asks are just reasonable. I just give you an example of the tariff. I'm not asking anybody to give me a purchase order or give me a contract to be rich overnight. I'm just saying set the tariff at a rate that will incentivize capital to come in and invest and set up local assembly and create jobs. That's not asking for too much. But there is no mechanism today for making it happen. You know? So we need to organize ourselves. The good news is when we are organized, I belong to a group in the U.S. called the Nigeria American Business Forum. It's based in Tampa, Florida. And it's relatively one year old. So there are groups like that that can coordinate with local groups and collectively form the pressure group to start steering decisions in the right direction. But it's not, I mean, we just got to do it because if we are like waiting for somebody else to do it, it won't get done. And it just won't happen by default. Tyre's points are really spot on. And Tyre mentioned something earlier that I think everyone really should pay attention to. I mean, at the end of the day, People, look, there are governments, there's companies, there's enterprises, but it's people. It's all people, right? So his point around, look, you find the people within a telco that are incentivized to work with you. Because one thing I found in life is, look, you need to play to people's interests, right? There's no amount of begging and cajoling that you can do. If it's not aligned with what that person has been mandated to do, there's nothing you can do about it, right? So a perfect example for us would be, look, I mean, we partner with Action. Action is a, is a financial inclusion fintech investor. If I have a different kind of business and I, and I pitch to Ashley, there's no way she'll invest in my business. We're just not aligned, right? So the same thing for you. When, when we go and talk to folks at the government, one thing I found is if you are aligned with their interests, in general, you'll get traction. So look, what do they care about? Taxes. What do they care about? Job creation. What do they care about? Creating an avenue that look, Nigeria can be seen in a good light. So as what we've seen is as we engage with the central bank, as we engage with folks like Nipos with our other business, our last business is once they hear, look, I'm willing to pay my taxes properly on time. I am creating lots of different jobs. Here's what I want from you. And I think if you have this, this approach, as Tyler mentioned, of it's not zero sum. I think that's where a lot of people lose a lot is that we think of, look, uh, if I win, you lose. It doesn't have to be that way. We can both win. And if you can communicate very clearly on how we both win, you will do well. I mean, we have a joke internally. Folks talk about partnerships in this market, but it's really vendorships. All folks are looking for is a vendor that can give them the, that can give them the best price. But those sort of models don't work. So for you guys, you have to say to yourself, look, I'm coming to talk to a government counterpart. I'm asking for a particular thing. Am I aligned with that person? Because if that person doesn't have a mandate to do what you want, there's nothing you can tell them. It will never happen. But if you have a very clear mandate to create jobs or to bring tax revenue, etc., and you can communicate very clearly how you do that, you'll be surprised how quickly things move. Forgive me, just again, to build on that real practical example, we've all read in the news about government giving 10,000 naira to traders, right? I mean, you've read about it, you know, small trader loan and all those kind of stuff. I find that very fascinating because that's why the fact that people look at it from a political angle and I'm not doing, I don't do politics in Nigeria, I'm not really interested in that. It does make sense because there's no access to capital, right? But you and I know that if government is administering that program, it will fail. So that's a classic example of a great idea that government is not well suited to fix. 
I have talked to people who have like small uh, microfinance businesses, lending to individuals, lending to businesses, maybe not as big as uh, Tunde, but they, they figure this out. They know how to reach these traders, how to get money to them, small ticket items like 10,000 naira, in a very efficient way using technology. I'm working one of them now on how to use technology to do this. But their recovery rate is about 95, 97%. But their model is so good that government can't do it. Wouldn't it be nice if there's a way for these guys to be able to go to government and say, you are going to spend this money anyway. You are going to give these guys this money. But the only way you grow this program is if the recovery rate is high enough so that you can invest more and more and more. We've got the platform. We've got the technology. We've got the skill set. And we've got the data to back it up that we can administer it for you in a way that makes sense for you and makes sense for the traders and we can grow it for everybody. It's a win-win. Government gets the political benefit of lending to people. Right? The program survives because you bring the private sector ingenuity and technology to bear. Right? And you also make your own money in a very clean way. So it's about thinking deep, finding the right areas, adding value. Get out of this purchase or uh, give me contract kind of mentality. Add value. And then, of course, getting access to the right people to make your pitch. It's doable. Great. Now I'm going to pose the last question because we're at time. Um, but just final parting words from each of you to, in the spirit of Lagos Startup Week, uh, what would you like to say to a young startupper who um, is looking to maybe start a fintech startup here in Nigeria, wants to engage with the China Chinese consumer, or wants to work with Chinese suppliers? Um, any parting words of inspiration? So, I mean, I've been an entrepreneur now for the last five plus years, so, so clearly there's something about it I, I enjoy. I think the first thing I'd, I always tell everyone is, look, be very honest with yourself if you want to, what type of business you're looking to do. Because I think oftentimes everyone sees the success stories, which is the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Jeff Bezos, and they think that's the normal path for entrepreneurs. That is the 0.01% path. Most businesses will fail. Right? It's more likely your idea will fail than it will succeed. So you have to ask yourself, look, if I am going to start this journey, is it truly something that I care deeply about? And I'm willing to go through the long nights and the uncertainty to see where it takes me. Because in general, your line doesn't go like this. It goes like this, and then maybe it goes like that, right? So that's the first question, first thing I'll say to you. I think once you've then answered that question, really give yourself the best chance to succeed. And what I've found is that, look, the first step is, is there really a market here? I think there is, but is there a market here? And the ways I've found to investigate that is go and work for a sector in a, or a company that's kind of doing what you think you want to do to understand, look, is there an opportunity here? Once you've validated that, the next step is, do I have the team that can really help me achieve this? For us, it's like building a soccer team, right? There's no team that will be all strikers, all midfielders, all defenders. You'll have the people that are the best at what they do. Because oftentimes, the easy option is to find a friend and say, look, let's do this together. But the reality is that friend might not be the complement that you're looking for to succeed. So my business partner, Erchin, complements my skill sets very nicely. I'm more commercial. He's more process, more product. And even though we're great friends, from a business standpoint, it also makes sense. And the last thing I'll say is, the entrepreneurship journey has lots of ups and downs. Make sure whatever you're doing, you're enjoying it and you're having fun and you're planning for the long term because it's going to be longer than you, it's going to take longer than you think. It's going to cost more than you think and you'll make less than you think. So you have to say, look, am I 
having fun? Am I taking care of myself personally? I'm working out or I go to church or the mosque, whatever it is that gives you your own personal comfort so you can really do this properly over a long period of time and enjoy it. That's what I would say. You know, there's a, I think it was a rap artist that once said that uh, it takes uh, 10 years to become an overnight success. You know? So uh, the reality is everybody looks at success and say, oh, that guy just did it overnight. There are 10 years of sweat behind it. I'm still sweating as I'm sitting here. You know, the... I think today covered most of it. You've got to be passionate about it. But just to just share some data with you, because part of it is also a mental thing, right? Get out of a quick success mentality. You know, talk to any VC or PE person in Africa today. I think there's consensus that on average it takes, on average at least, seven years, seven years, to build your business to a point that is really stable. Seven years minimum. Then it takes another three to five years to have that steady growth that gives you that comfort that, you know, what the worst is behind you. So you are embarking on a project. It's not one of those things that you get rich next year or the year after. You could get lucky. It could be an exception. But the rules that you are committing yourself like a decade of your life to it at the minimum, which then ties into its last point, make sure it's something you enjoy. Because the only thing that is, I'm an accountant by training. We always joke that the only thing that is absolutely certain about the forecast is that it will be wrong. That's the only thing that is certain about it. It's how wrong it will be is the issue, right? Are you going to be with the margin of error? Are you going to be 100% wrong? Okay. So, and, but if you believe in what you are doing, you genuinely see the opportunity. You are true to yourself. You know, there's no point banging your head against the wall if there's no way there. It's not the end of the world. You, failure is okay. It's okay. Don't worry about what people say. At least you tried. You know, just do what you have to do. But at the same time, if the opportunity exists, it doesn't mean that it will be a straight line. There will be obstacles. And you just have to find ways to adapt along the way. As long as you are true to yourself that this is real and it's just not being lying to you. But if you believe in that and you are passionate about it and you are realistic in your expectations. What I advise people these days is if you have an idea and you think $1 million is what you need to execute it, look to raise $2 million. If your business plan on, on, on PowerPoint on, on the spreadsheet tells you to take three years to break even, assume six. So... Build your plan on those assumptions. Now, go for your three years and one million, but give room for the fact that it could be double, it could be, take twice as much, and if it still makes economic sense, go for it, as long as you believe in it. Um, if So I think if someone here wants to start a business that involves China, the first thing you should do is download WeChat. Um, mo a lot of people in China don't really use email that much. Like they'll have them, but they don't really check them. So WeChat is the way to go. Um, it's also a great entry point to how finance, consumer level finance works in China because a lot of that happens through WeChat and that's what's enabling a lot of these like fancier business models we're hearing about. Um, and importantly for me, cause, uh, I can't really do more than order coffee in Chinese. There's an embedded translator just right into WeChat. So you just like click the message and it translates between English and Chinese. So immediately you have open communication. And that's probably like the first step to actually having like healthy, non-transactional, evaluated relationships. Awesome. So WeChat. WeChat all the way. I still have WeChat downloaded uh, from my, my China trip. <laughs> I'll add you after this session. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Tunde Tayo and Jeremy, for your time today. It was great to talk about government, collaboration, innovation, financial inclusion. Um, thanks for all of your points. And also thank you to the audience for spending your afternoon with us today. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned to our next episode. Subscribe to us at Startup Lagos on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Visit us at www.startuplagos.co.